Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for being here. It's good to see you all. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Leighton. I'm one of our pastoral interns here at Lighthouse, um, and I help out with the school ministry. Um, and uh, I have the privilege of taking us to God's Word today. So um, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, um, you probably know that we've just started our new sermon series through the book of Colossians. Uh, and we've titled this series, Colossians, Living in the Light of the Sun. Living in the Light of the Sun. And the idea of our, of our sermon series is that if you know Jesus Christ, and if you love him, and if you live for him, he makes sense of life. When he and he alone is the radiant sun in the center of our solar system, he gives light to everything else so that we can see life as it truly is. That's the idea of our sermon series. And so we're essentially walking through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, to see how Paul, the author of this letter, proves that idea to um, the Colossian church. And last week, Pastor David walked us through the greeting of the letter. So he talked about the hope of heaven and how thankful he is to see the, the Colossian church loving one another. Um, and now we kind of start to get into the actual meat of the book. Um, and uh, so in the, in the very beginning of this, the meat of the book, after the introduction, um, Paul kind of jumpstarts his whole argument. And if his aim is to convince the Colossians to live in the light of Jesus Christ, where should Paul start naturally? He needs to start by putting on full display the sun. Right? If, if he wants the Colossians to live in light of the sun, he has to tell us who the sun is. And you cannot live in light of the sun if you don't know who he is. So that's where Paul starts. So today we're going to jump into the word and see what Paul has to say about who Jesus is in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Um, and I guess, spoiler alert, to sum it all up, Paul says that Jesus is absolutely supreme over everything. That's his main idea. Jesus is absolutely supreme over everything. So for some context before we actually get to the text, the reason why Paul needs to tell the Colossians about the supremacy of Jesus was because they were hearing this false teaching that was tempting them to believe that Jesus was just one of many emanations from God. Jesus was just one manifestation. The false teaching was telling them that there were other ways to God, that there were other ways to experience God, that there were other practices that they needed to add on, that there were other things that they needed, to, they needed in addition to Jesus or instead of Jesus. And isn't that true of our day today? Many people... Even people who call themselves Christians believe that Jesus is just one road to God. That Jesus was a good person who taught good morals, just like Gandhi or the Buddha or whoever. And if you are just a good moral person, then you can go to heaven on whichever path gets you there. Many people try and downplay Jesus so that they can get away with whatever path they like. And it's in the face of that sort of teaching, that sort of false ideology, 
that Paul has some really, really significant things to say in, first, in Colossians 1. So open with me to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. We're going to read it together. Um, this passage is beautifully, beautifully written by Paul to convey uh, a Christology, a, a doctrine of Christ that would totally blow the minds of his readers. It's poetic, and some scholars even posit that these verses were a well-known hymn that kind of summarized the Christian teaching of who Jesus is. And it's one of the most important passages in the whole Bible that puts on display the second person of the Trinity. As I mentioned, Paul's point is that he, want, is that he wants to get across is that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. He's preeminent over all things. He's not just right. He's not just better. He's supreme. And Paul demonstrates the supremacy of the Son in three stanzas, each displaying his supremacy in a different way. So the, the stanzas that we're going to look at in, this, um, in, this, uh, in these five verses is, first, Christ is supreme over the old creation. Second, Christ is supreme in that he holds all things together. And third, Christ is supreme over the new creation. So um, this outline is pretty much straight, to the, straight from the text, and um, it's actually really cool how carefully Paul chooses his language. So I made this little um, diagram for you all on the back of your notes so you can see how the, um, the passage kind of breaks down into these three stanzas. If you didn't get a uh, sheet of the notes, um, Pastor David has some extras, so does Lizzie over here. So if you want one, you can just raise your hand. Uh, yeah, so if you look at the, at the handout real quick, just so I can explain it to you, so it's a help to you while, um, while we go through the passage. So the first stanza is represented by the first column on the left, and then um, it kind of goes down, Christ is supreme over the old creation, and it's parallel to the third stanza, which is on the right, and then the second stanza is in the middle at the top. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, it'll make sense as we kind of go through it, but... Yeah, just right off the bat, note the parallels. Like, this is really impressive writing. Anyway, um, yeah, stanza one's on the left, stanza two's in the middle, and then stanza three's on the left. I'm sorry, on the right. Okay, and so if, you're, if you turn to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, let, uh, let me read it together, and then we'll pray for God's help. This is God's word. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this very, very significant text in Colossians, and I personally am intimidated by it to, to try and communicate some of the most important truths of all of Christianity in it short 35-minute sermon, um, and yet, God, I have confidence that it is you who illumines the mind to be able to enjoy truth from you, 
It is you who gives faith to believe these things when you teach them to us. So I ask for all of us, God, that as we look into your word, we would see your son Christ as he truly is, supreme over all things, that we would marvel in him, that we would be changed by him, and that we would desire to live only and ever for him. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, let's jump right into verse 15. So the first point in stanza one is that Jesus is supreme over creation. So Paul begins this poem by telling us about who Jesus is, right? If we have to live in light of the sun, we have to know who the sun is. And the very first thing that Paul tells us is that Jesus is supreme because he is the image of God. Jesus is supreme because he's the image of God. Uh, And what this means essentially is that he is invisible God made visible. Obviously, God is invisible. Have, have any of you ever seen God? No. Um, and that's because God is spirit. He's not physical. You can't see him. That doesn't make him any less real. Um, but this word image here means that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is an exact representation. It's the same word Um, used to talk about the stamped portrait of Caesar on coins in Jesus' time. So Jesus, the son, is the exact impression of the father. It's like a stamp, like like a stamp or or a photograph, an exact representation. Or um, my favorite example is like one of those pin impression toys, you know, like the square things that have the pins in it, and then you like smash your face into it, and then it leaves an impression of your face, like... That's, that's kind of what the, the idea is. He's an exact impression of the Father. So, um, but it's not just that. It's not just that he's like this visual picture or representation of God. Image here also carries the meaning of true relational revelation. So Jesus truly reveals the relation, the relation or re- truly relationally reveals the Father, meaning that it's not just like God in flesh, But we also know God, the Father's personal character, who he's truly like in Jesus. This is really well summed up in John 1, 18, when John says about Jesus, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So it's not just that we see God, um, that he's a visual picture of God, but it's also that through Jesus, we know God's character. The point of this statement is that Jesus is equal to God. That's, that's Paul's claim. He's be, he's, his being the image of God means that Jesus is God himself. And Jesus made this claim about himself a whole bunch during his lifetime. For example, he called himself the great I am in John, 5, in John 8, 58. And he said of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not just a manifestation or an emanation of God alongside other options. He is God. And there is no one who rivals Jesus. Jesus is supreme because he is the image of God. But it's not just that. About point B, Jesus is supreme because he is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. 
So, when, so Paul continues in describing Jesus as the firstborn. And a lot of people will read this statement and think that it's saying that Jesus is a created being, but that is not at all what Paul is saying. Um, that's heresy, by the way. Jesus is not a created being. In the ancient world, to, the, to be the firstborn was a title of privilege. And that's the way that Paul is using it. In the family, the firstborn was the one to receive a father's inheritance. So when Paul is saying that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's, that, he's saying that Jesus, over everything that exists, in comparison to everything that exists, has the rights and privileges of the firstborn. He is preeminent over all creation because he's first. And then verse 16, if you look on in the passage, elaborates on why Jesus has the rights of the firstborn. It says, for by him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. So there are three, three ways why, or three reasons why Jesus has the rights of the firstborn. The first is that is because all things were created by him, or maybe better translated, in him, uh, meaning that he's, he's the actor who created. He's the one who created. Second reason is all things were created through him, meaning that he is the means by which he created. And the third reason is all things were created for him, meaning that he's the end for which um, all things exist. He's the reason or the purpose for all of them. So consider the, the breadth of these statements, okay? Paul says, for by him all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. All things. All things, including the sky, including the sea, including all creatures of the world, from the smallest microorganism to the largest whale. And Paul elaborates in the middle of verse 16, saying that even the things of heaven, even the invisible things are included. He says thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, and all of these are references to spiritual, heavenly beings that we can't see. Everything was created in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. That's pretty comprehensive. Jesus has the rights over everything visible and invisible because he is the one who made it all. Don't forget that everything also includes you. It includes your parents, your pets, your friends, your hobbies, the food you eat, the air you breathe, and you could go on and on. Everything that is in your life, that relates to your life, everything that exists ever belongs to Jesus. So consider this. If Jesus is the one who made you, and if it is through Jesus that you were made, and if Jesus made you for himself, then doesn't that mean that Jesus gets to dictate everything about you? Doesn't that mean that Jesus gets to decide how you live? That Jesus gets to decide what you value? That Jesus gets to decide how you use all that he has made and given to you? For example, 
Has ever, anyone here ever done pottery before? It's really fun. You sit down at a throwing wheel and mold a piece of clay into whatever you like. It usually doesn't ever go the way that you want it to. There's lots of mistakes, but eventually you can get to something really cool or, or fun or beautiful. So imagine that one day you want to make a beautiful bowl because you want to eat soup. So you craft the shape on the wheel, you do a beautiful blue glaze, you fire it in the kiln, and it's done. A perfect bowl for your soup. And as you're ready to put some soup in your bowl that you made for soup, just like you intended, all of a sudden, your bowl grows legs and jumps up, and it grows a mouth all of a sudden, and it says, why'd you make me into a bowl? Ew. I've decided that I'm going to be a hat. And you stand there looking at your bowl, like, what, really, a hat? It's ridiculous, you made this bowl for soup. And it's beautiful, it's perfect, it's so well made for soup. And then all of a sudden it decides that it wants to be a hat, a really bad hat. That's ridiculous, it's crazy, it's stupid. But isn't that the same thing as when we, as people created in the image of God, created for a specific purpose of worshiping and enjoying God, choose our own way and choose to live for a different purpose rather than God's way? Paul, in a different book of the Bible, speaks to this ridiculousness of created things questioning their creator's way when he says in Romans 9, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for, for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The context here is a little bit different, but the bottom line is that true life as a created being is only found in submission to Jesus Christ for the purposes that he has made us to live in. Christ has made you to belong to him and to be in relationship with him. And it's unnatural and against the created order for human beings to not live in submission to the supremacy of Jesus. You belong to and exist for Christ, and you cannot and will not live life as it's truly meant to be lived if you don't submit to the Son and live in his light. Your school, your family relationships, your friendships, your hobbies, your loves, your, your passions, your dreams, none of it will make any sense without the light of the sun shining down on it. Christ is supreme over everything that exists and everything answers to him. He is God and no other God or passion or love or treasure in the world can match or replace him because he and he alone is the one who made it all. That's point one. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is supreme over the old creation. Paul doesn't stop there though. The second stanza consists of verse 17 and 18a. It reads, and he, 
Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. This is point two. Jesus is supreme because he holds all things together. So if you look at the chart that I gave you, at the very top, verse 17a, um, he is before all things, serves as a summary of stanza one. Um, and then 18a summarizes the, st- the, second, or the third stanza, while 17b becomes this sort of like transition between the two stanzas. Christ holds all things together. Point two is that Jesus is supreme as the one who holds all things together. Now, the meaning of these words is pretty clear because because of the imagery, like he's literally holding all all things together. Um, But think about what that actually means for your life. Jesus is holding all of your life together. Jesus is the one who is sustaining the laws of thermodynamics and keeping physics at work right this instant. Jesus is the one who is maintaining gravity and keeping you down in your seat. Jesus is the one running photosynthesis in a gajillion cells right now, this instant, keeping life running. Jesus is the one keeping the roof above our heads from caving in on us. Jesus is the one enabling you to breathe and maintaining the steady beat of your heart. And he's the one keeping the planets in our solar system from flying off of their orbits and the atoms of your bodies from flying apart. Jesus is the one that keeps calamity at bay and protects you from harm each day. Jesus is the one sustaining it all. And without him holding you, your body, and your world together, what would you be? Everything would crumble. It would fall apart without his sustaining hand. Jesus holds everything together. Consider that truth in light of your being a sinner. What reason does God have to not let you unravel this very moment? All of us have sinned. We know it experientially. We know it by truth. And God is holy. And his wrath is fully against sin. And if Christ is the one holding us together, then why does he not let us fall apart? Why does he not let our bodies disintegrate? And why does he not let our souls fall into the pits of hell and be judged for what we deserve? It's simply mercy, just mercy. The great awakening preacher, Jonathan Edwards, once famously preached, there is nothing between you and hell but the air. And it is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. It is by God's sheer love and mercy that we are sustained in the supremacy of Jesus. Isn't that convicting? But see that his love and his mercy don't stop there. 
He doesn't just hold us together despite our sin. We see love and mercy and supremacy displayed even a step further in stanza three. This is point three. Jesus is supreme over the new creation, the church. So we get into the third stanza, and we see Jesus' Jesus's supremacy in a new realm over the new creation, the church. He says in verse 18b, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, the head of the church, he's talking about something much, much bigger than just a group of people who get together every Sunday to sing and to listen to some preaching and spend time together. He's talking about a global reality of the capital C church, which is the global group of people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, past, present, and future. And it's these people, because they are saved by Jesus, who will be with him in the new creation forever. Jesus is supreme not just over the created world, but over the future and over the new creation too. Look at the subpoint. Jesus is supreme because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So Paul in, in verse 18 appropriately references Christ being the firstborn again. But this time it's not, he's, he's not talking about over creation, he's talking about over the dead. And this is subpoint A. Jesus is the beginning, the founder of the church, and he is the firstborn, the resurrector of the church. It's these things that make him supreme. So let me explain what, what, all of, what, what is going on here as or Jesus is the founder of the church and the resurrector of the church. So we know from the gospel story that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the punishment for sin is death, right? So 2,000 years ago, in order to enable sinners like you and me to escape the punishment for sin, Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect life, and died on the cross at paying punishment for sin. And then God raised him to the, from the dead so that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be raised from death into eternal life with him. Because Jesus is the first one who died and rose again, Paul gives him the title of the firstborn from the dead. And he enables all of the rest of those who repent of their sins and trust in him for salvation to also with him die to sin and be raised from the dead. That's why Paul describes Jesus as the beginning of the church. He's literally the founder of the church, the one who starts and establishes it and gathers it together. And he's also the resurrector of the church the one through whom sinners can be given new eternal life. He's the founder and the resurrector. And because he is both, he is supreme over the church. But Paul isn't just satisfied to leave it there. He goes on to tell us more about that supremacy. 
And he gives us two reasons why Jesus is supreme over the church. And the first is verse 19, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. If you didn't catch deity the first time, here it is again. Jesus is God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And it's not that God was just satisfied or reluctant or appeased to do that, but he was pleased. He was happy. And it's not only that. The second reason that Jesus is supreme over the church is verse 20, that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on on earth or in heaven, through Christ on the cross. To reconcile means to restore a relationship. So this means that God was pleased to restore his relationship with all things through Jesus. But there's good news and bad news here. Paul's statement here automatically assumes that one, the world needs reconciling. That's the bad news. We all know experientially that the world is not how it should be. There's something fundamentally broken with the world, and no matter what we do to try and fix it, nothing changes. People sin. People hurt one another. People get sad. People get sick. People die. Wars and pandemics break out. Natural disasters tear the world apart. All of this is because Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. And since then, all the way at the beginning of creation, the whole of the world has been cursed, broken, sin-tainted, and groaning for redemption. But the good news of this statement is that God did something about that brokenness. Jesus Christ did something to reconcile the world to himself. And what he did was was he shed his blood. When Jesus came to live out the story of the gospel, he didn't just do it for the salvation of whoever would believe in him. He was also doing it so that he could redeem the brokenness of the entire creation. By the blood of his cross, Jesus began his work to undo all that Adam and Eve had done by first restoring the relationship between God and man. And when Jesus returns at his second coming, he will completely undo the curse of sin on creation. And all things, whether in heaven or on earth, will be restored to how they really should be. That's what Paul means by peace. In verse 20, he says, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Hebrew equivalent of this word peace is shalom. And it doesn't just mean like calmness or tranquility, like we might think it. It actually means, or more fully means, wholeness. It means a state of perfection where nothing is out of order. Nothing is broken. Everything is as it should be. And that is the world that Jesus is coming to establish. It's a world where there is no sin. A world where there is no suffering and no tears. 
a world where there is no separation between God and his church. That is the new creation, where Christ will reign as supreme. So I know that these verses contain a lot of theology, a lot of big concepts, a lot of things that can feel really abstract. But why does this matter? Why does it matter that Christ is supreme over the old creation? Why does it matter that Christ is supreme over the new creation? How does it apply to you today? I think one really significant way is that, or one really significant reason it matters for you today is because Jesus has promised that he's coming back. And when Christ does come back, as he promised, you're either going to be on the right side or the wrong side. The winning team or the losing team. You're either going to be aligned with and protected by the one true triune God as part of the church, and you're going, or you're going to be against him and condemned. You'll either get to experience peace, perfect wholeness, shalom that Jesus bought with his blood for all of eternity, or you will experience everything but peace for all of eternity. Jesus's supremacy will either be the sweetest joy and the greatest comfort, or it will be the greatest threat to you. And to be honest, if you're not in Christ, that should be terrifying. If you refuse Christ's call to be reconciled to him by repenting of your sin and resting in his saving work on the cross, you make yourself an enemy of God. But at the same time, you have no reason to be afraid if you respond to the gospel in faith. If you confess your sins, God is faithful to forgive. And he will not cast out anyone who comes to him. By responding to the gospel, you get to experience that wholeness, that peace, that true, complete rest for all of eternity because you can be sure that you're on the right side No matter what challenges or dangers you face in life, no matter what physical or spiritual forces that may threaten you, you can have confidence that your Savior has bought peace by the blood of his cross and that he is reconciling all things to himself. But that is a rest that only those who've responded to the gospel in faith get to experience. So let's summarize this whole poem from Paul. We saw in stanza one that Jesus is God and he made all things and therefore owns all things. Jesus is God, he made all things and therefore owns all things. In stanza two, we saw that Jesus holds all things together Jesus holds all things together. And in stanza three, we saw that Jesus, through the gospel, 
is reconciling all things to himself. Jesus, through the gospel, is reconciling all things to himself. This, these are the reasons why Jesus is supreme and deserves to be praised and exalted and treasured and lived for. This is the foundation for the whole rest of the book of Colossians and really for all of the Christian life in general. The glory of the sun of our solar system is even more radiant than we imagined. And it is his supreme light that illuminates all of life. It's this sun that makes sense of our lives. And all of life is supposed to be centered around Jesus. For those of you who have grown up at Lighthouse, or if you've been here for any significant amount of time, you might have heard Pastor Kim say one of his famous Kim-isms, Jesus is not just right, he's better. Jesus is not just right, he's better. You hear it all the time. And what he means by that is that Jesus isn't just the objective, like morally correct choice out of a pantheon of gods or options of spiritualities in the world. He's the only one who can subjectively bring real salvation, true peace, lasting judgment, enduring joy, and final rest. He's the only one. So he's not just right, but he's also better. He's more satisfying than anything else that the world can offer. And it's, a, it's such a true statement. But I think sometimes, sometimes a theology that, that's built just on that idea can miss the point. What I mean by that is there are going to be some days when Jesus isn't better to you. You're not going to feel like Jesus is better subjectively. You're not going to feel like Jesus brings real salvation or lasting fulfillment or enduring joy. And so if you believe that Jesus just happens to be the best option out of a bunch, simply because he does something for you, then on the days that you are on those days when you feel like he's not the best choice, you're going to be easily tempted to choose something else that will do it better. You're going to easily jump to some other religion, some other idol, some other success or pleasure or achievement to get you that feeling of fulfillment, that feeling of rest. And when you do that, you will miss the fundamental reality of all of life, of all of existence, that Jesus is not just right and Jesus is not just experientially better, but Jesus is objectively supreme. Jesus is objectively supreme over all things. And do you believe that? The question I want to ask to close is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus, is the Jesus that you know and believe in the supreme one? Is he preeminent? Or is he a, a different kind of Jesus? Jesus is not just some dude who lived a long time ago and died. Jesus isn't just one of the options to get into heaven. He is God. And he's supreme over all things. He is the only true revelation of God. He's the only way to the Father. He, and his preeminence, his supremacy over all things demands a response 
You cannot escape the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And you should be in awe of him, of his glory, of his beauty, of his love. You should love this Jesus. And you should be shocked by him. If you are in awe of him, if you do love him, if you are shocked by him, and if you do treasure him, praise God, marvel in him every day and let his light transform your life. But if you're not, if you're not in awe of him, if you don't see him as supreme over your life, it probably means that you haven't seen him as he truly is. Let me say that again. If you're not in awe of Jesus, and if he's not marvelous or beautiful and glorious to you, or if you believe that there's some other way to get to God, or some other way to be satisfied and fulfilled and live a good life apart from Jesus, then you probably actually haven't seen Jesus as he truly is. And if, if, if that is you, then I beg you to ask God today to open your eyes to see Jesus as he truly is, as supreme over all things. Let's pray together. Father, in light of this passage, I ask that you would show each and every one of us the supremacy of your Son. For how, how can we live in his light and live life as it was truly meant to be lived, apart from intimate knowledge of and relationship with him? There's no other way. And yet, God, I know that there are probably many of us in this room who don't actually see Jesus for who he is. I pray that it's not the case. But I know that there could be many of us who know intellectually the stories and, and know what Jesus taught, but don't actually see Christ as supreme, as the one who created all things, as the one who holds all things together, as the one who is redeeming all things, as the preeminent one. So God, I, I desperately ask that you would do what only you can do and open up the eyes of those who don't see Christ to behold the glory of your Son. And for those of us who do, may we be captured by his light. May, be, may we be in awe of him every day and may he illumine everything in our lives so that we can see them as they truly are. Father, continue to work in our hearts to help us see and savor Christ. Help us to reflect on the truths of this message in our small groups and, and help each other understand and, and apply these truths better. And may we all see and savor his supremacy and, and be forever changed in his light. We pray these things in your glorious son's name. Amen.